Well, we certainly probably have all heard the phrase, your walk talks louder than your talk talks. And there's a lot of truth there, isn't there? We, want, we don't just want to hear that somebody is going to change from a sinful pattern into a, 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 a Christ-like pattern. You don't just want to hear that somebody's going to finally make that change that you've been wanting them to make for years and years, or even a, a health kind of a change where we know we're kind of living in an unhealthy lifestyle, we're not eating right or exercising, whatever the case is, and somebody says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make this change. And then a week goes by, two weeks goes by, three weeks goes by. Been there. Been there. But our walk talks louder than your talk talks. And last week we looked at the conflict of every Christian. We saw that our old nature, the the old nature that we're automatically born with, every single one of us, we want to gratify that nature. We naturally struggle with sin. We often fall into gratifying our flesh, yet we're called, as we saw last week in Galatians 5, we're called to walk by the Spirit, right? We're called to to live by the Spirit. So we have this conflict. Naturally, we want to sin, but as a result of our conversion and God giving us a new man, there's this conflict between the two. We know what we ought to do. We know how we ought to do it. We know we should live like Christians, but it's hard to walk the walk. It's not easy to walk and live by the Spirit. But Paul says that if we walk by the Spirit, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Is that comforting to know that if we're struggling with sin, the way to to overcome that is to walk by the Spirit? So as we come into today's passage, what Paul is going to do is he's going to give us a couple practical applications of that. Okay, so walk and live like the Spirit, Galatians. Walk and live like the Spirit, people of Windsor Christian Fellowship. Okay, but how? How do we do that? How can we go about that? One commentator said that it's easy to talk about the fruit of the Spirit while doing very little about it. In other words, it's easy to sit around and kind of identify, well, I struggle with this and this, but I'm doing okay in in this part of the fruit of the Spirit. It's easy to kind of assess that and say, okay, I need to change, but it's difficult to make that change. It's easy to talk it, but it's not easy to walk it. And so in today's passage, what Paul is basically going to do is he's going to take a spiritual thermometer, he's going to put it in our mouths, and test our spirituality. He's going to show us a couple practical things that truly spiritual Christians do. I mean, come on, most of us probably like to consider ourselves spiritual. We, we trust in Christ. We believe in the gospel. We try to walk by the Spirit. So we like to think of ourselves as spiritual. But Paul shows us in this morning's passage that Christians shouldn't consider themselves spiritual just because they're doing okay on a personal level. That's good. We should. We should personally walk by the Spirit. We should personally be going to church, we should be reading the Bible, we should communing with our Lord and all of that. However, there's, there's another level. Just because we're managing things well on our own and our own responsibilities and our own little world doesn't necessarily mean that we're as spiritual as we ought to be. Instead, he shows us that Christians who are truly spiritual bear one another's burdens. And these are the two ways in which Paul expects us to, as spiritual Christians to act and, and Two things that we ought to bear. 
We ought to bear one another's spiritual burdens, and we ought to bear one another's physical burdens. Look down at verse 1. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or also you may be tempted. So let's again acknowledge that Paul has come hard after these Galatians, hasn't he? We've seen some pretty strong language throughout the book. He's, he's coming after them. He wants them to change. He wants them to grow. But yet he still refers to them as brothers. Yes, they're following after a way that they shouldn't. Yes, they're being duped by false teachers. But he still calls them brothers. The first word there in verse 1. Brothers. So he still recognizes that they're believers. This word can also be translated brothers and sisters. He's talking to the congregation as a whole. He still recognizes that although they've sinned, although they've erred, they're still his brothers. They're still his sisters in the Lord. So he's, he's <coughs> calling them brothers and sisters and saying, if some of you are caught in a sin, if some of you are gratifying the desires of your flesh, then you who are spiritual should go after that person. If one of us is is falling away and doing what we shouldn't do, that list of sins a few verses earlier, or sins like it, those who are spiritual within the body should go to those people. Those who are gratifying the flesh, they should be pursued and restored back into the body. But this is a job for those who are spiritual, which is referencing those who are living by the Spirit, those who are exemplifying the fruit of the Spirit that we saw last week. And so those who are living this way have the weighty responsibility of restoring people back to the church who have, bought, who have been caught in sin. That's a, that's a heavy responsibility, isn't it? That's not something naturally we want to do. If we know somebody has fallen away and doing what they shouldn't do and is gratifying their flesh in ways that God would not want us to, we wouldn't naturally want to go to that person. The word for restore here, that spiritual people should restore others carries a connotation of mending a fishing net. I don't fish, but I have gone fishing. And the, one of the things that I don't like most is all that you have to do in order to get the line out. You've right, you got to get the hook, you got to hook it. you got to put the sinker on it. you got to put the bobber on it. Then you got to touch a worm and put that on the hook. That just, it takes too much time. I, mean, I don't know if it's the ADD or what, but it's just like, I... I, I it just takes too much time. But back a couple thousand years ago, and I'm sure it's still in other parts of the world, now they had nets. So they would drag their nets and they would catch a bunch of fish within these nets. And the word restore here carries a connotation of mending your nets. So those who are spiritual should be mending the net. So what would happen is these fishermen would, would go to their net after a big catch or after it, it tore for whatever reason off the boat or whatever, and they would have to mend it back together. So after a big catch, after the day is done, they're going through the net, and they would make sure that any piece that was broken would be mended back together. They would find any weak spot within that net, and they would restore it back to full strength, and so should it be within the body of Christ. If anyone is found in sin, you who are spiritual should go after that person and restore them back. You should help mend that net. You should come alongside that person and give them the encouragement that they need. Give them the accountability that they need in order to be strengthened, in order for that net to come back to full strength by helping restore them 
and to pull them from their sin, you are making the church strong again. You are mending the net. And this is a mark of a truly spiritual person. It takes a truly spiritual and godly person to address the sins of other Christians and restore them back into the fold. But when we go to these individuals and we approach them about their sin, Paul says that there's a very particular way that you need to do this. If someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. And that's why it is those who are living by the Spirit who should do the restoring of other people back into the fold because it needs to be done in a gentle way. Our motivation for restoring somebody should be out of love and it should be done in the spirit of gentleness. John Stott said the following, If we walked by the Spirit, we would love one another more. And if we loved one another more, we would bear one another's burdens. And if we bore one another's burdens, we would not shrink from seeking to restore a brother who has fallen into sin. Further, if we obeyed this apostolic instruction as we should, much unkind gossip would be avoided. More serious backsliding prevented. The good of the church advanced and the name of Christ glorified. What if our church sought to grow in these ways, where we walk by the Spirit, which is causing us to love one another more, which is causing us to bear one another's burdens and to know about the burdens of others in order to be able to bear them. It would cause us to seek to restore sinning brothers and sisters, which would free us from gossip and backsliding, and all this would be for the advance of the kingdom, for the good of God's kingdom, and for God to be glorified, which is the ultimate goal. But there's a warning. In the end of verse 1, look at the warning that Paul gives. So, you who are spiritual should do this. You should restore people. You should do it in a gentle way. But, watch yourself. Or you also may be tempted. So, this kind of ministry to fallen brothers and sisters does not come without danger. There's There's a chance that by pursuing somebody who has fallen into sin, that you yourself can be tempted into sin and be exposed to their struggles and their issues and fall away with them. This is why those who go about this kind of ministry should be those who are living by the Spirit. So if you go and you talk to a person who is impatient and who is known for cutting people down with their tongue and you struggle with the same thing and you aren't patient, gentle, or kind, it would be very easy for you to flare up if they flared up at you forgetting, forgetting on them, right? So if you go to somebody who has trouble with their tongue and then they start whipping their tongue at you, but you struggle with the same thing, it's almost a guarantee that you're going to fall into sin with them. Or maybe you struggle with gossip or slander and you're genuinely working at it by the power of the Spirit and you go to somebody else who struggles with the same thing and instead of approaching them about their sin, you end up falling into gossip and slander with them. This is what Paul means. Watch yourself when you do this kind of work. Otherwise, you may also be tempted. Look at verse 2. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. So, as we've seen over and over in the book, Paul has been trying to rid the Galatians of the idea that they had to live according to law. So they were trying to add the law to the gospel. They were trying to say, We need to be circumcised, we need to follow these festival days, we need to do this, this, and this that the law has in order for God to be happy with us. In order for us to be Christians, we need to have law as well. And we talked about practically in our world and 
21st century America, in our church, we do the same thing. You've got to look a certain way, act a certain way. You don't go to certain places. You don't be with certain people, that kind of a thing. And if we follow those rules, then God will accept us. Then God will be happy with us. But there is a law that God wants us to obey. So all of that is stuff that Paul is trying to rid the church from. And he's trying to give them a pure law. And that law is the law of Christ, which he mentions back in chapter 5 and verse 14. And to fulfill the law of Christ is to love your neighbor as yourself. So the brothers and sisters within the body of Christ should carry one another's burdens. And it's in this way that you fulfill the law of Christ. So if you're looking for any kind of law to obey, if you're actually looking to be able to fulfill some kind of law, fulfill the law of Christ. Love one another. Love your neighbors. Carry each other's burdens. This is the way that you show your love to those within our faith family here. You love one another. You carry each other's burdens. A church that is bearing one another's burdens is a church that truly loves each other. It's a church that has a watchful eye. That you're, you're constantly scanning for those who have need and you're going to them and helping them. You're reaching out to those who are struggling in their faith or with sin or with some kind of loss. And by doing this, you're fulfilling the law that God wants you to fulfill, the law of Christ. And by this, we're truly loving one another. Our willingness to bear one another's burdens is a way in which we emulate what Christ has ultimately done for us, isn't it? Christ was the ultimate burden bearer. When he took your burden of sin and guilt and shame and he took it upon himself on the cross and he bore it for you. We're to emulate that. Like, like the old hymn says, right? when, when on the cross my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. He's the ultimate burden bearer and we're to emulate him as his younger brothers and sisters. Christ was willing to go to the cross to bear our burden. And we should be willing to bear the burden of each other. The word for burden in verse 2, if you notice when Larry was reading, there's, the word burden is used twice. And in verse 2, it's different than in verse 5. In verse 2, it's referencing the kind of burden that one person can't handle. It's the, it's the kind of burden that requires those who are spiritual to come alongside and help that brother or sister, to, to help lift that burden. Are you a burden-bearing believer? Do you purpose to go alongside others and help bear their burdens? Are we a burden-bearing church? Are we the kind of church that everybody's eyes are just constantly scanning, looking for people who have need, looking for people who need their burden to be bore with them? But being this kind of church... It's demanding. This takes our time. Being this kind of church is more than coming to church on Sunday morning for an hour and seeing each other for a little while and then not seeing each other till the next Sunday. Being a burden-bearing believer and being a burden-bearing church requires our time and a strong commitment. A church is a, a called-out group of people that are, that are called out of the world in order to, to lean upon each other and depend upon each other and to receive care from each other. The church is a place where I need you and where you need me. There are no disposable members within the body of Christ. So my point is this. You don't become a burden-bearing believer on accident. This is intentional. This is something that you strive for. This is something that you push toward. Constantly looking, constantly trying to help those who have need. But Paul lists a couple of the problems that we have from pursuing this kind of ministry. There are roadblocks to this kind of ministry, and he acknowledges them in verses 3 to 5. 
Look down at verse 3. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else. For each one should carry his own load. So the first problem keeping a Christian from being a burden bearer is that we're proud. We're proud. We think we're above one another. We think that we're above this kind of ministry where we actively seek to bear one another's burdens. But all of this is self-deception, Paul says. The point of verse 3 is that if you're conceited, you're deceived because nobody is above this kind of ministry. The second problem, keeping a Christian from being a burden bearer, is that we are insecure. We're constantly comparing ourselves to other people. Either we are above other people and we can do a far better job than others, or we take the opposite position where we see ourselves as less than everybody else. So regardless of what side you're on, whether you're proud and you think that you're above this kind of ministry, or you think very little of yourself and you don't think you could do this kind of ministry, the outcome is the same, isn't it? We don't end up bearing each other's burdens. So if we're proud, we're not going to bear each other's burdens. If we don't think that we can do this kind of ministry, we won't end up bearing one another's burdens. And so those who are under the weight of an unbearable burden end up getting crushed by its weight, often leaving the church in discouragement and fear. So those who are walking by the Spirit are called to bear one another's burdens. First, by bearing the spiritual burdens of one another. And second, by bearing one another's physical burdens. Look at verse 6. Anyone who receives instruction in the Word must share all good things with his instructor. So simply put, Paul is saying that those who, are, who benefit from the preaching and the teaching of the Word should share their material goods with the person instructing them in the Word. And whether you believe it or not, pastors do not like to talk about this subject. They do not like to talk about money. They do not like to talk about how they should be compensated for their service. But this verse is interesting when you compare it to other verses that talk about uh, paying those who are teachers or those who are teachers within the, in the church. This verse is different because he uses the word share. So those who are being instructed should share with their instructor. The word here suggests like a partnership or a fellowship between the instructor and those being instructed. The teacher does the work of digging into the scriptures and studying and preparing sermons and lessons for, of, from the word of God for the congregation to feast on. This is his duty. This is his calling. This is, in a very true sense, this is his work. This is my work. What, what I'm doing right now is representative of this week's work. And so just as it is a joyful thing for me to present my week of work to you each Sunday morning, and how joyful that is for me, it should be a joyful thing for the church to share and to care for her pastor. So if I were up here and I were teaching in a begrudging way, and I were just kind of going through it and uh, whatever, I'll just kind of figure out something the night before. On my way here this morning, my dad's like, oh, make sure you get, you know, figure out what you're going to preach. No, it's kind of a joke that a pastor works one hour a week, and that's between 10 and 11. But if I were coming here and I were begrudging, and then you would share begrudgingly, that wouldn't be a good situation within the church. That would only lead to contention and strife between the pastor and the congregation. But what's interesting is that this really doesn't necessarily just apply to pastors. 
Some may not know it, but, but those who come in and preach, we, all, we give them a stipend for their work. We compensate them because the instructor is worthy of being compensated. You who are teachers know that you know, you, you're teaching, you're pouring yourself out to kids, and, and you want to see, obviously, a return for that. You want to be reimbursed for your valuable work to them. So there's this idea of sharing, and there's partnership, and this fellowship, where I'm sharing the spiritual side with you. I'm investing in you spiritually. The instructor is pouring himself out to his people. And then from the other end, they're saying, okay, well, he's doing the bulk of his work in the spiritual realm and, and doing a lot of that. He can't necessarily get out and work like crazy, so we share material with him. And that's been a big blessing for us even since we've been here. We, we do feel very cared for by you all. So this isn't a charge to you to give me more money or anything like that. <laughs> this is, I'm recognizing that you certainly care for us and we're thankful for that. But this is just what Paul is saying, that an instructor is worthy of being compensated. But Paul goes on to say that what we do with our money and where we invest it is a spiritual matter. Look at verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will, will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit, will reap eternal life. So those who are sowing according to their flesh are following after their flesh. They're gratifying their flesh. They're pursuing their own desires in this life. And this is evidenced by where they are putting their money. But in the end, what will come to those people who sow their, their money and they sow their efforts into the wrong place? If they sow it into their flesh, they will reap destruction. But those who are sowing according to the Spirit and are thus walking by the Spirit will not inherit the destruction of their flesh, but they will inherit everlasting life. So Paul is continuing through these verses with the thought of money. Money is definitely still in the back of his mind. It's still ringing. It still has to do with sowing. Where are you sowing your money? But it also extends to to other things. Where are you sowing your time and your effort? What what are you pouring yourself into? Is Is it for the gratification of your flesh? Or is it for the advance of the kingdom? Is it being sown to the Spirit? I like what one... Source said, it said, sowing to the Spirit with our money means that we joyfully go out of our way to support the work of God in this world. Sowing to the Spirit with our money means that we are joyfully going out of our way to support the work of God in this world. So there are two ways to sow. Either we will sow pleasing ourselves in the passions of our flesh and reap in hell what we have sown on earth, or we, we will reap the rewards of heaven after sowing a life living by the Spirit. As Christians, when we talk about money and where to put it and where to put our time and our effort and all of that, we have to have an eye in two places. We have to have one eye here on the present and we have to have one eye on eternity. There's no doubt that Scripture has a whole lot to say about a father and how he should provide for his family. And if he doesn't provide for his family, then he's worse than an infidel. The Bible talks about how a father and a mother should be industrious and teaching their families about being wise financially in this present life. But if we have an eye on eternity, then we're going to realize that our money and that our material things and all the things that God has given us are completely temporary. All the things that we do here for the gratification of our flesh or for our own advance or building our own kind of platform or whatever the case is, whatever we all of that is for ourselves, and it's going to completely burn away. 
It's temporary. So Paul is calling us to sow to the Spirit with our finances in a way that reaps a great reward for the sake of the kingdom. And don't get me wrong on this. I've told some of you several times that I like to go to those upper channels on the TV where there's always these guys, you know, really serious evangelistic kind of guys, and they're always saying, you need to sow your seed. If you sow your seed of, I, I feel God wants you to give $5,000, you need to sow your seed of 5000 That's not what Paul is saying. That's a, a misuse of this passage. Don't, don't fall for that kind of a thing. But sowing to the Spirit with our finances in a way that reaps a great reward for the sake of the kingdom is doable. And God does bless what you sow. There are many ways in which you can choose to use your funds that God has given you for the advance of the gospel, for the advance of His kingdom. It doesn't necessarily just have to be this church. You can distribute your funds as you feel God has led you to do. But one of the ways in which God expects us to, to distribute our funds is in the care for each other, in the bearing of one another's physical burdens. Turn over to Acts 2. There's a great example here in the end of Acts 2 where the author Luke writes for us how the early church was interacting with each other. Look at uh, verse 42 of Acts 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone who was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Flip back to Galatians 6. What a testimony for the church to have. That's a, that's a radical way of living. Again, if you're looking to live in, in a radical way, this is it. A church that's devoted to the teaching of the word and to fellowshipping with one another. A church where everybody had all things in common. And on top of this, if anybody had need, they would sell their stuff and they would give the finances to that person to help them get into a better position. If you're looking to live radically, live like this. The early church had an eye for people who had need. They refused to let any of their fellow members go without. They were burden-bearing believers. Look down finally at verses 9 and 10. Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people especially to those who belong to the family of believers. This is such an important thing to have our eye on as we bear one another's burdens, both spiritual and physical. Don't become weary in doing good. If you have sown well, both financially and spiritually, you will reap what you've sown. Don't get impatient. I'm not a farmer. I don't know anything about farming or vegetation or anything like that. But I do know... That if you put the seed in the ground, you shouldn't expect it to come the next day. You will reap what you sow. It will take time. But while you're waiting to see that harvest and for God to do the work of, of the ministry that He's given you to do, don't grow weary in well-doing. 
But Paul encourages us that as we have the opportunity, while the opportunity is in front of us to do good to others, and especially to those who make up the family of believers, that we should take it. When there's opportunity to serve, when there's opportunity and you're scanning the crowd and you're saying, that person could really use a hand. Help them. Assist them. Do what you can. Bear one another's burdens. You don't need to be a pastor to live like this. Oftentimes, that's the expectation, that that's what the pastor does. He's the one always going to people who are sinning or or whatever the case is. But we need to do that for one another. You don't need to be in full-time ministry to develop an eye that surveys the church looking for ways in which you can bear the physical burdens and spiritual burdens of others. All you need to be is walking by the Spirit. As an individual who is walking by the Spirit... You can come along a fallen brother and sister and you can restore them back into the body in a gentle way. An individual who is walking by the Spirit can go along a a brother or sister who has fallen in in some kind of trial or has some kind of suffering or loss of a loved one or whatever it is and help them regain their footing. So may God help us as we walk by the Spirit to bear one another's physical and spiritual burdens. Let's pray.